Space Burgers, and welcome to the Space Cave. I'm David Huntsberger. A big warg to all of you. Let's check in with a citizen of planet Earth. Hello? Daniel, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. You Can you hear me okay? Our first our first try was a little rough. How, how was the... I yeah, hear- I accidentally put the um, speaker on for the... Or the... Yeah, the speaker call on. Oh, I see. Yeah, it sounded like maybe I'll share some of that audio later in the episode or something because it sounded like you were <laughs> sliding down a street, um, maybe trapped underneath maybe. like a big truck or something. It was pretty, pretty crazy. Trapped underneath a, a truck with a barking dog like last time. <laughs> yeah, for people that uh, may think like this voice sounds familiar. They may wreck. Although you're, you've grown up a little bit, you were what, like sixteen last time we talked on Professor Blastoff. Yeah, I was like sixteen. <laughs> yeah, the barking dogs in the room next door. We were cracking up at that. That just it seemed like you were leaning against a door that not only they were barking next to, but also like trying really hard to push through, and you were just desperately trying to to make it all stop. <laughs> it's like, all right, gang, this is still going fine, and uh, those dogs were real jerks about it. Yeah, it was actually, it, my my room has a window, that's why. And so, my mom, she always um she always wanted my window open, or else she'd say I have the door open. Right. So, <laughs> so, I'd always keep the window open. Are you still living at home now? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, actually, I'm still living at home. I'm going to school at uh, Cal Poly um, Pomona. Oh, cool. And uh, I just, um... I commute there on, on bike and on bus just because I'm, I'm stingy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it felt like last time you were living in a household that's pretty strict. Like it wasn't entirely okay maybe that you were even doing a podcast or, or chatting. That if your parents found out, it may have been sort of bad news for you. Is, it, is that still the case? Have they mellowed out a little bit? or? or? I mean, like there is a lot of people living in one house you know kind of like big brother in the real world uh-huh. so you tend to get on each other's nerves and like so but now it's like they really don't care as long as they know where i am and what i'm doing so oh well, speaking of what you're doing you you reached out because you have a pretty big new development that you've undertaken which i'm excited about also not entirely 100 percent surprised by if that makes any sense i was excited um, to see you're pursuing this <laughs> Like, you want me to say it, or, like, uh, do you want to say it? Or? <laughs> it's it's your thing, man. Uh, it's it, I guess as much. I don't think it's anything to be uncomfortable or certainly not ashamed of. But, again, like, if your parents are going to listen and you're worried that maybe they don't know. No. Okay. No, they know. Um, they're really supportive of it. Um, I do. I started doing drag, like, when I was 19, 20. Mm-hmm. And uh, this would be my second year starting in drag. And... 
they're a lot more supportive of that, um, mainly because, uh, yeah, I'm just grown up and that's what I want to, you know, that's, that's just a pastime of mine. You know, as long as I'm not shoving it in their face, they don't really have objection. Sure. But I, so I did, um, a show last year in Pocatello, Idaho at this, like, I think Mm -hmm. there are two gay bars in that town, which I was shocked by in rural, um, out in the middle of nowhere, Idaho, but they have this long running drag show, like 20 years. And so I got to be in the green room in the back and it was, it reminded me like of the birdcage a little bit, just the hustle and bustle. And like, I really, there was no show, there was no show going on, but I could see all the show posters and kind of all the mirror space and, those great little like vanities where you can imagine everyone like getting ready, like, come on, the, sh- the next number is about to start. And just that, the, the flurry of activity. And I, I liked it. Like I, I thought it was, it felt very show business. Like, and I would imagine you getting into that world. Is it real freeing? And, and you know, that, are you feeling like part of that excitement? Does it feel like a, a new sort of welcoming sort of nest to be in? Well, yeah, it actually, it actually does. Um, the funny thing is, is that, um, I'm just so like, I come prepared like an hour, like I come like an hour earlier to the, <laughs> like as soon as the bar opens. Yeah. And then, um, so I just have everything, you know, patted down. So <laughs> I tend to be pretty, um, stoic. <laughs> so when I first there. started, I'd be like, where's this? Where's, where's my, where's my makeup? Like where, where are my shoes? <laughs> and then, um, as time went on, I just like, you know, I just I just uh, planned everything out, and like now I just get nervous when I'm about to go on, but I'm not into the I'm not really in the hustle and bustle. Oh, I see. Thing. Okay. But a lot of um, a lot of the girls that I perform with, uh, they they like come like at the like at the last minute when they're supposed to come, and then yet they're still getting ready <laughs> when everyone else is performing. So, and, and, I mean, I always try and help them out. So. Yeah, because you're prepared. Have you? Uh, have you taken on a role where you're kind of like the caretaker, the responsible one of a group? It sounds like because you're there early and prepared that people can come to you and be like, Hey, zip me up. Or can you put this on or whatever? Yeah. I mean like, um, my persona because, um, in drag, like most people, um, tend to put on this persona of, um, that's very promiscuous or, um, very, I guess, uh, sassy or, the word I would use, or I always think of, my, yeah, is, um, is like brassy, like throwing a leg up and like eyes up here, honey, like kind of the ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. That's what I think of as like the most common drag character. But, sorry. Didn't yeah, I mean, that, that's, uh, sorry, that's the, um, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a very timeless representation, but a lot of people, like my generation, it's more about looking pretty and uh, being very, um, like... I guess, um, blunt and, uh, in your face. And, but I guess, uh, I, I started to do drag because, um, in my regular life, people tend to look at me as a serious person. And, uh, they think that if I'm smiling or being nice, they think it's a hidden intent. And so I started to do drag to show, um, kind of like express the, the, those kinder side of me that uh, people would be, more suspicious of if I did that in my regular life. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, when um, superheroes have like a hidden identity, I think in real life when people have that, sometimes it can be like, 
you know, people who do crime and things like that, like they're holding on to the secret identity or something. But I think everyone in some way has a, some need, whether it's through art or performance or whatever, to get out a different side of them creatively or just different energy. It seems like this has been really <laughs> cathartic and helpful for that for you. Is that, could you feel it building up? Like, ah, I need to, I need to represent myself differently. Like what was the impetus to say, you know what, I'm going to go sign up and go to this drag club. Had you been checking it out or was it just kind of an epiphany? Well, um, it was more of a thing of, um, things just coming all at once. Like one thing came after another. Um, I had, it was actually, I met a friend in uh, college and, uh, she, um, I was part of the business club at that college before I would transfer to Cal Poly. There was, I guess, like, the clubs would compete against each other, like, for a week-long event. And one of them was a lip-sync competition. And so I wasn't really too shy about it. Everyone else was very reluctant. And it was, like, an easy win to for, for our club. So I was like, I'll just do it. And so they dressed me up. And then my friend mentioned the club that I um, mainly perform at called uh, 340. That's in Pomona. And a lot of big-name... Uh, drag um, queen from RuPaul's Drag Race and other such places um, tend to show up at, 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 that, um, at that venue. That's and cool. so I went out on a whim and, and I, um, I signed up and it wasn't until after that performance I established I can use this as a way to show that um, I can like to let out that, that kindness that, that I don't usually have a chance to let out. Sure. I, I would imagine too, like to, you know, cause there's cheering and there's a, a level of comfort. Like I've been basing a lot of this just on the birdcage, but I feel like when you first march out your persona and like Beyonce has Sasha Fierce, who she becomes on stage and you have your drag character that you bring out for the first time on stage and you're presenting this like kindness and openness and a different side of yourself it had to have felt good like when you did hear some cheers or clapping or like, you know, words of encouragement from the crowd. Is that really like, is that what it's all about or is there, is there a lot more to it? Well, for me, it's about, because um, I've always uh, performed and entertained even as like really young. So um, I've always liked to see people be happy and get excited and I feed off of that energy. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, and uh, but other people like do it for other reasons whether it's a uh, exposure or because um money or other such things but for me it's more about the the, the art and performance side of, of of that aspect cool man well i have a lot more questions um maybe we could do a little bit of bonus chatting about this i have so many more things i want to ask about um just what you've been up to but specifically this new drag world you're a part of Are sure you- okay let's do that mm-hmm Nice to hear from Daniel Alberto. Um, If you want to hear more of that chat, it's in the Patreon. We continue on about his new life in drag and Evie Stones and his future and et cetera, et cetera. Nice to catch up with him. Uh, You might remember his voice if you listen to Professor Blastoff. Uh, He did an episode where he was seemingly trapped in a room being barked at by dogs the entire time. And uh, it was a little, little forlorn this time that there weren't some dogs attacking him. But it was nice to hear from him and catch up, and um, we continued that chat for, I think, like nearly an hour. So if you want to hear more about that and the drag world 
and so on. Um, the Patreon's a place to do it. Thanks to those of you who do support the show. Uh, it's ad-free, other than me talking during these particular moments about uh, your support. But it's put together by contributions from listeners just like you. It really does make a huge difference. So on behalf of Dan and myself, thank you for supporting the show. And um, let, speaking of the show, let's get to it with some hardcore chatting. This is part one with Arvel Chappelle, who um, is a friend of Sam Mondegarin's. So thanks to Sam for putting us in touch. Also, thanks to Kim Bowman uh, for putting me in touch with Sam initially. He reached out and said, uh, I like this beer called Tokyo Black. You'll hear us talk about that at the beginning. It's really good, though. If you haven't had it before, and I assume you probably have not, it's pretty hard to find. But if you do, it's really good. It's a porter from Yoho Brewing. I don't know. I really enjoyed this chat. I hope you like it as well. Here's part one with Arvel Chappelle. All right. Do we want to open these Tokyo Black Porters? Arvel Chapel or Chappelle? Chappelle. Chappelle. Arvel Chappelle. Ooh, that kind of that, like a cool rhyming name. That's fun. You're grimacing like, I get that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good to have you in here, man. And a little uh, tip of the cap where this beer to Sam Mondegarin, who um, put us in connection. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. And your job title. I was oh, just, oh. I oh, guess yeah, we can say I can off the record. Okay. I think I want, I don't want to necessarily say because okay. like there's this whole process for being approved to talk f- on behalf of the company. Sure. Okay. And I didn't go through that for this. <laughs> <laughs> I have been through it before. Okay. So I would just uh, just wanted to say major studio. Major studio. Okay. But we could. I mean, but I'm okay to talk about Boeing and saying I worked for Boeing. That's fine. But just for the uh, okay the film stuff, it's major studio. Major studio. Okay. Well, yeah. First, we should open these. I guess these. The, so let me read a little. No, I can't. I, can't. <laughs> I was like, wait, that's English. That's definitely not. I think the part where you would read like a little bit about the beer is definitely in, I want to say Japanese. Japanese. Okay. Product of Japan, brewed and canned by Yoho Brewing, Nagano, and it's imported through Seattle. These were This beer I had to go get and buy by the can. I don't think I've ever done that before. <laughs> They're like, yeah, man, we have some of it. We sell it by the can. I was like, oh, that's really weird. So I'm, I'm excited about it. What is it that makes you, Arvel Chappelle, what makes you love this beer? And I love that you love porters because almost no one, when I ask them, suggests porters. But that's, for the, for the last few years, I feel like that's my favorite type of beer. You know, I'm not very well refined in, you know, having to know a lot about beers. Okay. I don't drink a lot of beer, uh-huh. but this is just one I happen to find, and it's just stuck with me. So, were you in Japan? Were you in Seattle? No, Where did they I find was you? Actually, in downtown Los Angeles was the <laughs> first time I had this beer. <laughs> so, it does exist in this city. Of course, it would. I feel like we get everything here, but this is—I mean, this is like a deep cut going to find this one. And I just picked it because I, I was wanted to try something new that night, and I saw the name. And the bartender recommended it, so I just gave it a try, and it's stuck with me ever since. Cool. Well, I'm going to pour it into my Brett Kern official mug. Smells really good. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have too much beer. This is like, if you go out, you'll like have a beer just to kind of... I'll go out. I have to be in the mood for beer. Usually, I'm more of like a scotch kind of guy. Oh, really? Okay. A scotch and a wine guy. But when I, that this is my go-to beer when I do drink beer. Mm-hmm. My girlfriend and I recently did, uh, 
cooked up some steaks and had a little scotch with it. I was in um, Scotland last year and like she and I had been there previously and we finished that scotch. It took us forever to finish this <laughs> tiny little thing of scotch. So we were like, let's have, let's have like steaks and scotch. And when I was younger, I remember thinking like, that would be the most sophisticated adult I could be if I like just had a little bit of scotch at night. That seemed like very adult-like. But now when I think of doing that, I'm just like, oh, it's, <laughs> it's so harsh. It's good every now and again. But when I go out, I, I, I'm always worried that like I, it'll just affect me wrong. Like beer, I feel like, well, I, it's a slow measured process so I can keep Right, it. you have some wiggle room. Yeah, yeah. This, this beer, by the way, is a little strong though, so you'll, you'll notice. But. <laughs> okay, <laughs> good. Oh, that's nice. Man, I like that. I like, especially like as we record this, it's a pretty chilly day. I don't know if people can hear in the background. We have a space heater going in here. It's like uncharacteristically chilly for Los Angeles. So this is perfect for me. I really like this. And in the thing, it says it has little notes of like coffee and chocolate, like Mm -hmm. a lot of stouts do sometimes, but they're really subtle. You know, I feel like the coffee is kind of there and it's, it's on your tongue, but you, you don't, you wouldn't immediately go like, oh, that's coffee. Yeah, it's very, like very subtle, subtle notes in here. Yeah. But again, like I'm not too well refined. <laughs> my palate I think that's for all you beer, have to say. Subtle but... notes. <laughs> <laughs> Sound like a complete expert. Um, so I would have assumed you um, <clears throat> perhaps had sourced this in Seattle because you mentioned working for Boeing previously. Yes. But no, I, I've never worked on an airplane. Um, I was acquired my company was acquired by boeing mm-hmm. in 2001 2002 i worked for Hughes space and communications okay uh incidentally our friend sam mm-hmm. worked next door for a time at raytheon oh really yeah so you guys would hang out so you were film school buddies would you see each other at these like companies that were next door to one another well we we so yeah so sam it's it, our relationship was interesting because we had so much in common so we were studying film at the same time at USC, mm-hmm. and then we also were working in aerospace at the same time, right next door to each other. That's so weird. So, so we would have lunch, <laughs> and and talk about movies and talk about cinema mm-hmm. the whole time. And ever so, every so often, we would get into engineering stuff. But you know, we tried to just stay grounded in cinema because that was the how we met each other and and what our love was. Are there a lot of guys like you that have those two things? I mean, it just seems so uncommon to me. It's more common than you would think uh-huh. for people to have uh, technical degrees, um, but but it is rare, you know. Yeah, especially that combination, I suppose. When I think of electrical engineers, like when I went to school, they were like the smartest. And I don't even know if that's what you majored in, if that was like your focus. I majored in electrical. You did, okay. And um, I would say that we were... We're almost as smart as I would. I would put chemical engineers higher oh, really? than okay. higher than electricals. Yeah, I guess I do equate those kind of at the highest end of, like the mechanicals and the civils, way down on the other end. Right, like. <laughs> but we love them all. Yeah, sure. Now, there's something about like just having engineer in the title that I think you go like, all right, you you can be in this. Your your brain probably works a certain. But way. you know what it is? I think for me, it's, it's just about the abstractness of mm-hmm. electrical engineering and chemical engineering. Yeah, whereas. Uh, mechanical and civil stuff that you can touch is stuff that you can see yeah and so uh when you get into talking about electromagnetism and and these abstract ideas then that's that's what makes it a little bit more difficult 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I could barely keep up when, you know, you could have like a model car and be like, here's what dynamics look like. Here's gravity. Here's friction. Like, okay, I'm following you. And then once the equations started getting in the mix, like, oh, I don't know if I'm following all that. <laughs> it feels like what you guys are dealing with are almost purely kind of these abstract hypothetical things. Like, we're pretty sure this exists and it operates this way. We can't really see it. Right. And so we just have to come up with ways to model it and do all that sorts of stuff. But it's fun. <laughs> yeah. I bet, man, like, and are you a Caltech guy as well? No, I didn't go to Caltech. Sam oh, okay. is on another <laughs> plateau I mean Caltech's you know arguably number one number two back and forth between MIT I was just gonna say those are the ones when people say it I go oh whoa yeah like, M- MIT Caltech oh my goodness like and it, they always brush it off and, ah, it's just a school right Where'd, no. where'd you study no I went to Cal Poly oh okay went my cousin went there yeah nice so so that was my school and the whole thing about Cal Poly was learn by doing mm-hmm. uh so there was a bunch of labs and it wasn't as theoretical as, as a Caltech, not at all. So what's a lab look like? What are you using in there? I mean, is that the dumb question? Or when I think of electrical engineering, are you, like what Sam does is more like on the computer chip side, mm-hmm. really small, infinite stuff like, like not infinite, but infinitesimal kind of nano. It's, yeah, it's a guy. It's people in smocks um, with oscilloscopes mm-hmm. or network analyzers or just the kind of depending on what type of circuit you're dealing with. Yeah. And you just try to, you have tools to basically measure the abstraction. So we talked before about these electron movements and all these things being abstract and you can't really see it. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the lab is just a place where you can go take measurements so you can start to make these abstractions real. And they're real in the way that like those results will be replicated time and time again, like in a very predictable way. You would hope so. <laughs> you would hope so. <laughs> but but when s- they don't, that's when things get interesting, right? Particularly if it's something that's man-made, something that you've de- designed like a chip, and it doesn't act the way that you expect it to, then there's, there's learnings there. Maybe there's something wrong. Uh, maybe you discovered something. So mm-hmm. uh, it's fun. It's always fun to, to look at the patterns, try to find the patterns. But when things go wrong, that's when... Yeah. That's when the fun stuff. <laughs> so when you say abstraction, I think of it as like abduction, like you're pulling these electrons out of there. That's probably an idiotic way to look at it, but I, I, I don't know what the term means, so I'm just guessing. I'm just, I just mean an abstraction from a way of thinking, like an abstraction to it's not something that's necessarily tangible, okay. right? They're there, but you don't see it, so we need abstractions to talk about it. So give me an example of like something you'd be working on. You get the abstraction where everyone can agree on like, okay, this is what we're dealing with. Well, so I spent a lot of time uh, working on antenna, uh, antenna sa- uh, satellite antennas. Mm-hmm. And you can't measure an antenna pattern. Or you can't, I shouldn't say you can't measure. You can't see an antenna pattern, but you can measure it. Okay. And so you have to come up with an abstraction in order to discuss it with other people. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So you have radiation patterns and, and what coordinate system do you want to look at the radiation pattern in? Mm-hmm. And everyone has to be on the same page. And so those are the type of abstractions. So everyone agrees upon the abstraction. And then now you can talk about it and discuss it ah. and, and make sure that it meets requirements and mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Ah, I got it. 
It seemed like, I feel like Sam, we talked about, he and I talked about, like, if I were starting an A team, and I don't know why I'd be in charge of, like, selecting members, I'd, I'd more likely be just begging a group, like, bring me along. I don't offer much, but come on. <laughs> I'll chuck in some, some, something worthwhile at some point. So I thought you, you knew Sam from Caltech. No, no, no. I, so his wife, Kim, um, listened to a previous podcast I did. And then when I started this one, she was like, hey, I, I'll, I really want to help the show get off the ground and started putting me in touch with people from Caltech, Sam included. And then he's like, hey, I've got some people I can put in touch with. <laughs> and so you were like the top of his list. <laughs> and um, yeah, so that's how we ended up here today. But Sam and I have become, because he's been in here like two times now, which is like, four hours or so so i feel like we know each other fairly well and we get along i feel like very well i really like sam and so it's good to have you and where you went to caltech where are you from originally um so i went to cal poly i'm from oh, sorry, I'm, not cal, did i say caltech you said caltech yeah. i wish i would have went there <laughs> no i meant cal poly but, sorry. but um no i'm from southern california so mm-hmm. i grew up here in a, a city called cerritos and then also i was my childhood was split between cerritos and la mirada which are both you know, San Gabriel Valley. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been here the whole, my whole life, <laughs> my whole life. Uh, I did a little time in, uh, at Tuskegee university mm-hmm. briefly. I just couldn't take being in the South with the, with the weather. What state is that? In? That's in Alabama. Okay. Briefly. I was there and then, uh, came back and went to Cal Poly mm-hmm. and, uh, just haven't looked back, went to USC afterward. And finally now I feel like, I'm able to combine the two because I, I did the, the cinema school, I did electrical engineering, and now what my career is, is combining the two. Yeah, I was going to say, <clears throat> I think I kind of started to talk about your uh, description of your career is so bizarre of like emerging technologies and like virtual reality and then the way I was just a brief description is like you're trying to figure out ways where like the reaction becomes a part of what you're experiencing. Well, so it's been a long journey to get here. Mm-hmm. Um, it started at USC when I was uh, getting my MFA in cinema production. And because I had a technical background, uh, I wanted to figure out a way to combine the two. So what does that mean? So Back in 2006, 2007, I made this interactive cinema project. Mm-hmm. And it was programmed in Flash. So if you remember Flash, action oh, yeah. script. I hated Flash. <laughs> it would always shut down. It was always, I couldn't figure out the tweening. I was always trying to animate in Flash and so <laughs> frustrated by it. Sometimes it would work, though. If you just put in a bunch of images in the timeline, it would give them all a, what they, a frame. Yep. You, you can do change like the, the frame stop. rate. Yep. And then it had that little circle in there. And you remember? Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I made this film and it had some very basic logic. And the logic was if the microphone on your computer uh, detected clapping mm-hmm. or if it detected laughter, yeah, then do something. And in this case, to do something was play another video clip. So this is, did you write like some kind of software, like an if then loop? Like if this Yeah, in, in action script, it was basically just an if then else. And mm-hmm. then it actually triggered a, the audio was actually sent to a MATLAB, MATLAB routine uh-huh. that would do this basic envelope detection and try to figure out whether or not someone was <laughs> laughing or not. You make it sound like, and eh, it was just this basic <laughs> envelope detection. <laughs> like, I don't know what envelope well, detection well, is. Just, well, if you have like an audio waveform, yeah. Um, just like you, I'm, I'm sure you look, look at when you're recording this yeah. podcast, um, they look different 
depending on if someone's talking or if it's music or if it's uh, laughter. Sure. So, or if it's clapping. So it's kind of a fingerprint or like a signature. So you could say that's clapping. That's a crowd of people clapping. That's one person clapping. Right. So you, so you just look at the spectrum and figure out what 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 it is the content of of the of the audio file. So does that start to fall in like the AI category a little bit? No, uh, not. I mean. I don't know. I have kind of a love-hate relationship with AI because, you know, going back to the Turing test, right? AI sure. is anything that can fool you to thinking that it's human. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was back before that terminology was popular. So, <laughs> <laughs> so maybe today if I were to do it, I would call it AI. But back then I didn't. It was just kind of like, <laughs> it's just uh, what what is the spectrum saying? And I'd have to do a bunch of research and figure out what the envelope would be for clapping so, or but laughter. You're but a- you're a film student at this point and you've got this program and it's just 2d video at that point, right. but it's recognizing that, is it just blowing away the people in your film school? I mean, are they looking at like, no one else is doing this. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it wasn't a typical film school class. So it was more in the interactive division. Mm-hmm. So they were used to making games and stuff like that. Oh, okay. That being said, no one had ever, done a project similar to that yeah and it was really ahead of its time because who's how would you distribute something like that yeah and and it really didn't make even sense now that i think back (laughs) back about it because when you make a movie what you're doing is you're averaging you want it to be the best for the most amount of people yeah so that's really like an average response right yeah and so the clapping and laughter was really just sampling the average response of the of the audience anyway. Mm-hmm. But I think what you really want to do if you have a system like that is really tie into an individual. And so, um, so I think that was a little bit misguided. A lot of the work that I do now is, is, is similar to the same concept, but more on an individual basis. So um, with VR, you have someone who's wearing a headset Mm-hmm. And then if you do the same sorts of subconscious, uh, whether or not they enjoy it subconsciously, then you can start to tailor the experience in real time. You're like the architect of the next dimension. <clears throat> I hope all of that made sense. It's like, I think it does. I mean, I was, I was doing this um, animated stand-up special a few years ago, and this guy reached out to me with this really interesting technology. And he was it was kind of the equivalent of... You know when you walk through an airport and you walk past one of those screens where like the leaves will move as you pass by it? It's like motion detected. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's relatively similar in that like it's an if then, if motion's active, it detected, do this. And he was like, we could make your special different for every individual viewer. And I was like, I love that. Because the idea of, and this seems so rudimentary to me at the time of someone sitting in front of a laptop, but when they laughed or moved or whatever, the animation would change slightly. So it was purely specific to them. Right. And then I was like, that is like getting excited about someone rolling a wheel down the road and not having any idea of what like a bicycle could potentially do. You know, it just seemed like that's VR is the next step. And so you're that you're in that world is pretty baffling to me that it exists, that it's possible that you could make a thing where anyone that steps into it like experiences something that's perfectly unique to them. Right. And I, you know, I, I kind of think of what my job is, is the crate crate in the future. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's such um, a, like a bold, cool thing well, to say. <laughs> hey, I'm Arvell. I create the future. <laughs> and it's not like anyone knows. And that's just to kind of remind myself that 
it's okay to take risk. It's okay to make mistakes because when you say that your job is to create the future, uh-huh. no one really knows it. Yeah. But we all create it. Yeah. Every single day. So it just gives it like it's like an empowering thing mm-hmm. because I know that we're all responsible for doing it. And it's not to follow what other people are doing. It's to say, okay, this is the idea I have. This is a hypothesis. So let's go and test it and see if it works. But I mean, I, I think everyone could quantify it differently as to how much they are contributing to the future. You know, people mm-hmm. that are raising money to design a toilet that we can drop <laughs> in sub-Saharan Africa and like, you know, really minimize waste of, right. of water and things like that. You go, right. Oh, that's, you're, you're making the future a lot better right. than me or scribbling down these jokes or putting out a podcast or I think what you're doing I mean, really, when we think of like dystopian futures or just, and we always call them dystopian, but just because they're futuristic, but just purely futuristic projections, they have a lot of the stuff that you are working on. That must feel pretty cool to like, I'm pushing us toward this thing that will be totally normal in the future. Yeah, I think it's just a collective humanity. You know, I'm just the one small little guy trying to push the envelope ever so slightly you're our leader but it didn't you know i'm standing on the shoulders of a million other people and a million other artists who have dreamed these sorts of things well before me yeah of course i've been exposed to and now i think i have new ideas new experiences so now i want to use that to push it ever so slightly higher still yeah and that, then that's that's what everyone should be kind of striving for, right? That's an ideal society of everyone pushing the bounds a little further, right? Right, get, getting smarter, understanding, developing, you know, solving math equations that hadn't previously been solved, and pushing it out further like that. Yeah, so that's what I just think about what it is that I try to do every single day because I don't know, coming from working in the space industry <laughs> and the type of stuff that we had to do every single day and it just makes you want to do something big and grand and hard and exciting. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the impetus. Like I'm curious, I have so many questions. One about USC and the film school. I mean, you, you have graduated from Cal Poly, then you go to film school. So you have this electrical engineering knowledge. So I would imagine like the way the cameras operate, even the lights, kind of all the things happening in a studio, you have this fundamental knowledge is much different than most filmmakers of knowing kind of what all the electrons are doing in all these devices. That must be a strange feeling. Well, so there is, I also worked for Boeing for many, many years. So, um, so it wasn't like that transition was straight from undergrad right to grad school. Okay. Um, Cause I feel like I learned a lot about how to be an engineer by working, working as an engineer, as opposed to necessarily in school mm-hmm. because I started, working as an intern at 19 so i was only i I probably spent one year in engineering school before i actually had an engineering job yeah and so when i first got that job it was very intimidating mm-hmm. right because obviously i didn't really know much yeah. about engineering <laughs> but i have like i have tasks to do and i'm surrounded <laughs> and by the- people from caltech and and mit and all these other brilliant you know and they're engineers. not like not to say dumbing it down, but they're not saying, hey, so what we want you to do is this. You want to go talk. They're just saying, get me blah, blah, blah. And you well, have to know what that is. They're doing that. But a lot of a lot of it's acronyms. Mm-hmm. So just being there and I had to try to come up with, remember what all these acronyms <laughs> were because you don't even understand the jargon. Yeah. But it turned out to be a mixed blessing because 
I learned how to be an engineer by actually being there on a job. And there are so many uh, gracious people that I met, fellow engineers who helped me mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. So going from that to being in film school, um, I didn't think about that type of stuff while I was on set. Mm-hmm. Or while I was, you know, the camera's there, but it's just a tool. So at that w- point, it's just a tool to make something that touches someone's emotions. But were you like unfulfilled with your engineering internship and and, and being in that world and like I want to go do something creative? Is that what? No, it it wasn't. It wasn't that it wasn't fulfilling. I just knew that I had this interest. It was a curiosity, mm-hmm. and and so that curiosity fuels both passions were you a like a film enthusiast growing up were you just like watch a lot of movies and really study it that kind of kid not so much my dad is a big film buff Mm -hmm. and so he has like he probably has thousands of dvds Uh that are all obsolete now no (laughs) nobody he's he's the guy he built a theater in his house added a whole another room just for a theater so um so he's a big film buff i came at it more from just kind of a artist like creative thing my thing was photography and poetry mm-hmm. like in going back to high school yeah and then i discovered film by combining those two things in a way and so for me it was just more about telling a story gotcha and so that that those passions eventually led me to film mm-hmm. and the thing now is just that there's just so much new territory new stuff that no one's figured out yet with VR and where that's going to lead, mm-hmm. that it's hard to think about anything else other than what are you going to discover yeah. on how to give someone an experience. So, I mean, I always like to know everyone's, like, what was the impetus or what was the drive or what was this, this voice kind of with <laughs> inside that you, you couldn't quite listen to, but then once you did, it steered you this direction. Yours seems like kind of a... a a hodgepodge so to speak of those but there was like as you know like there wasn't this i had to go to film school it's just kind of like oh, i liked i want to be creative and you get there and it seems like you're still kind of searching like getting into the vr is it, is it one of those things like we'll you know it when you find it or does it feel like a gold rush like where you are in an uncharted frontier kind of chipping away I think, I think the goal for me was just to combine the two because mm-hmm. for a long time i was doing engineering and then doing cinema and now i don't feel that same type of dichotomy like i feel like the direction that i'm going fulfills me in both ways it seems like a perfect merging yeah because even the stuff i'm doing now there's a lot of engineering in it Mm -hmm. and i i um from the fact that we are generating ip generating patents stuff like that so there's a ton of engineering in it and there's yeah. also a ton of, you know, creativity and storytelling in it. Yeah. And so it becomes, well, how do I, how do I uh, create a way to narrative engineer? Yeah. Well, I mean, when I saw your place of employment, you know, I, I think it's like at the bottom of maybe your email or something like that. I was like, it's a major studio. It's like a big, when I think entertainment, I think people just doodling cartoons and then the business side of things like getting distribution and stuff it was to think that there's like a 
dedicated area of this like high level engineering of, I mean, you have hardware and actual physical things that you're working on there. It's almost, it seems like a science place or like a Tony Stark lab or something. <laughs> well, I, I, it's not that glamorous, <laughs> um, but I, I feel like extremely fortunate and lucky um, to, to be able to, to do, to do both. I think it's just because of the time that we're in. Mm-hmm. To be here at this moment in time, it's like being around in the early 1900s when cinema was first created. Yeah, a lot of the if, if the history of that was it started as a um, a science project. <laughs> it really <laughs> did. There was a photographer named um, Edward Muybridge. Okay, who had who was a still photographer, and he was hired by Stanford, so Leland Stanford. The, the same Stanford that, you know, is the, the moniker for Stanford University. Okay. He was also the governor of California at a time. And so the question of the day was, when a horse runs, is it airborne? Mm-hmm. So that was all the question. Everyone's betting. They're like, no, it's not airborne. Yes, it is. So uh, Stanford hired Moybridge to test this out. Mm-hmm. And so he built this contraption, which was really just a bunch of cameras in a line. Mm-hmm. And as the horse would, would run it would sever a string, which would cause the shutter to release. And so that was the pretty much the beginning of, of cinematography. Whoa. Yeah. That's... And so much later, Edison came along and then made it into a mechanical thing where you can move the film and then actually make a cinema camera. That was but also that was the Edison? Beginning. Yeah. Man, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> so, that, so that was the beginning. And yeah. so it started as this question. It started as this science thing. Mm-hmm. And then later down the world, down the, down the road, sorry, later down the road, it became a whole new form of entertainment. And so to be evolved now yeah. is kind of the similar thing that's going on. Whew. Do you know, I mean, when was like early Disney and that like really, really early animation? Was that, what, do you think that was sort of spawned from that same thing of seeing a bunch of still frames go together? And if you just move your eyes across them real fast, you'd see a horse run. Or if you know if you flipped them through a book, this horse would be running. Do you think that was the birth of animation as well as film? Well, I, you know, I don't know a whole. I haven't studied the 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 birth of animation as much. Um, but yeah, it's the same. It's the same idea. It's mm-hmm. just a bunch of images passing through time. Yeah. And so, um, I I just brought it up thinking that like the, it seems like animation would be more intuitive to humans that we'd go like, I'll bet if you know I did this. And yet having to see the horse and go, oh, like that's all life is. It's just a series of these snapshots that all go together and make it seem like all this is moving. Yeah. And then after that, of course, there was um, after that technology development, then it became about how, well, how, to, how do you use it to tell a story? Mm-hmm. And then there was this seminal book by uh, Hugo Munsterberg, who was a, uh, a psychologist who wrote this, this book in the 20s, tw- late 20s about uh, cinema. Mm-hmm. And they, he called it a photo play mm-hmm. at the time. And it was about, there was an argument going on at the time about how cinema was inferior to the theater. Mm-hmm. And this book came out and talked about the psychological processes that go on between, or differences in the psychological process that go on between a viewer watching the theater and a viewer watching the cinema. Yeah, And that was pretty much the groundwork for all cinematic theory, storytelling theory. Hmm. And so we're in a similar place now. It's just, it's just, we're trying to figure out VR. We're trying to figure out how to tell stories in VR. How do you tell a story when someone feels like they are present 
in an environment yeah. and they want to have agency in that environment. So how do you tell, how do you tell a story? How do you control a narrative? And that so was, that's the big kind of question that's going on now. I mean, it really, every day you guys must have this conversation that is probably, I mean, it's been discussed a lot, I think just in common barroom conversations but the idea that what if this is all what if i'm really just a character because if i were designing ultimate vr experience i mean we'd really nail it with what we have right meaning like you birth into it and you don't quite remember where you came from and then as you grow up suddenly you're the hero in your own story if you should want to go on and like build a rocket and launch a car to orbit earth and, go, <laughs> and make electric cars and what you can do that or you can just have a quiet house in the suburb you can, you can interact with this thing is that eventually what you're trying to replicate or do you want it to be better than this life that we're currently living I, i'm of the camp that it should be better mm -hmm. i'm of the camp of i want to take you i want i want to enable you to do things that you can't do mm -hmm. in real life because then what's the point, right? <laughs> well, to play it, to counter that a little bit, say I can fly in your world. And that's really all I'd want. I just fly everywhere. But diminishing returns, it's likely that if I flew around the globe a few times, and I mean, it's like the most crisp version of Google Maps. I'm flying and I can see everything so precisely and over volcanoes and over remote parts of the ocean where it's just serene and still. But I do that for so long that I'm kind of bored. Would there need to be some heartache some down you know some darkness to it some bad elements that would make the flying more worthwhile well that's where the whole storytelling element comes right like mm -hmm. you need to be able to control that environment to give someone a satisfying experience right and so that's when artificial intelligence or software and all this stuff come in mm -hmm. because you need to control it it's not a theme park ride in other words it's yeah. like you have agency, but what do you do with that agency? And how do you manipulate the experience in the world around that agency to give that particular person a satisfying experience? Yeah, you probably can't divulge too much, but do you have like, <laughs> do you have any examples of stuff that would be, it'd be like this, or maybe equate it like a video game, or like, oh, there's a coin world, you know, <laughs> like stuff like that where you could say, yeah, here's what's bad about it, and here's where you have the agency to maybe choose between being bummed out or quitting the game or forging ahead? Um, I don't think there has been many examples. I mean, uh, the closest example, though I haven't played this game, is a game called Myst. Oh, I've heard of Myst. Um, and as I understand it, you, you go and you play the game and the game adapts to you, but it's not like a traditional narrative where there is one ending. Or mm -hmm. maybe there's two endings or three endings. You yeah. know, this kind of has infinite, mm -hmm. infinite in quotes endings. And so the game adapts to you. So it's more like a, what we like to call an emergent narrative. Mm -hmm. So the narrative is not stuck in stone. It's changing with you. It's looking at how you interact and what it is you like or dislike and making a, a million decisions. Do you did you watch Black Mirror at all? I love Black Mirror. So it seems like there, the idea there is that we'll bring <clears throat> the world to your mind in an implantable sort of way. So rather than like with VR, it's slightly different where you're entering the world through kind of this physical headset. Yeah. Do, do you think there's any competition there at all? Is like I don't. I kind of see them as, as all the same. I just think it's just a, just the tech is limiting. Mm -hmm. So now we have this bulky headset. 
but in the future we'll have a chip. <laughs> but do you think the chip, like, would they keep going in through like the temple with just that little nub? <laughs> do you think that's remotely realistic? Uh, I don't think that's realistic for now. <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the technology is going to be. Yeah. Um, I, I probably think the matrix solution was probably better than the, the, the small little chip on your temple. Yeah. Like going in with a big <laughs> rod in the back of your skull. Well, I was just... <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because that limits your motor skills. You know, you've got like your whole brainstem back there, like jamming this big rod into it. But do you really need it if you're if you're simulating? Yeah. You know everything. Do you really need to still have motion? Yeah, I would say that you don't. Yeah. And I would say like maybe that's what we keep doing. I feel like that's maybe a hypothesis that we keep diving into the next dimension or realm, and somewhere our physical beings must still be. But then we advance this technology and go put this on dip into here and the and maybe like inception or all those kind of concepts that the time is minimal it's one second in this world but because i think about that with dreams you know you have a dream that you feel like God, i lived in this place for like two weeks i remember time feeling like it went by but if someone had a camera on you while you slept it would just be your eye twitching a couple times and that's <laughs> it like that was the whole dream it was in that frame like time is anyway i yeah, so I'm on the camp. I, I just want to give people experiences that they can never have. Mm-hmm. And that means a lot of different things for a lot of different people. For instance, um, I just came back from Brazil. Okay. So I was there for carnival. And, uh, for research for work? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was one of the things on my bucket list was to go to the Samba Drome, which is the, the stadium they built just for carnival and having mm-hmm. the different schools come in there and compete in the dance. Oh, cool. And that was an item on my bucket list and and fortunately i have the means to be able to go and do that but a lot of people don't Mm -hmm. whether it's because of money or maybe it's because of health or whatever it is so at one level it's just being able to give people that type of opportunity on the other level it's what would happen if i was out in space yeah what would happen if i went to another planet yeah. So all this, these things that we've seen in our, our human humanity's imagination has captured in our in our art in our cinema, being able to place somebody there. Yeah. And and actually make it to where they feel like they're there because it's not going to happen in our lifetimes, right? Yeah. You. I I, <laughs> I, I. I picture myself being so old when it's like training facilities on the moon and kids go there kind of as a prep thing internship from college got to get my six months in on the moon then i'm boosting out to jupiter's moon i'm going to series and i'm going to hang out there and you're like oh i wish i'd taken better care of myself when i was young i can't go now (laughs) and the thought so that part maybe exists but yeah i see what you're saying like wouldn't that be the worst if they were just tweaking and getting the finishing touches on your thing ready and you're like i my eyes don't work anymore my feeling i can't i can't really experience it in the same way yeah so it's just a a matter of just giving people experiences that they wouldn't normally be able to have and then figuring out a way to control it such that it's enjoyable for them do you think the old hand of the free market and or capitalism would get involved and and you look at now in this world if you have the means like you just kind of touched on the means to like have a yacht and sail anywhere or be in high rise apartment buildings in any city in the world or own a villa or on and on and on all these things where you're like, I can do anything. I can go zip lining, bungee jumping sky. I can eat all the finest foods. I could really treat this world like a playground, but you have to have the means. And then you hear about these things of like 
drugs that no one knows about or these remote locations where people do these bizarre things just because they have the money to do it and whatever. Would it be in the VR world potentially something to that extent where like, oh, you have to afford to get into the really great worlds. Here's what everyone gets. You get this with your Verizon phone. <laughs> you can you can go these four places. You can go skiing. That's that's fun, right? And then everyone goes, I have VR skied, but I got to pay so much money to get into the space one. Or does, this, does that seem realistic or is that not even worth thinking about? That's, I don't know. I feel like that gets into more economic economics and you mm-hmm. know so i feel like that's gonna be a part of whatever comes next in society so there will be an aspect of that involved in vr yeah um but i i feel like there will be enough people who would make their own stuff independently or yeah. there'll be like a lot of open source stuff i know amazon is trying to do that now yeah where they have this like this open source vr really uh, yeah and then also with web VR. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of two things that are happening now. Of course, Amazon's doing it because they want you to to buy AWS, which is fine. I mean, if they're able to give if they're able to democratize it enough. What is AWS? AWS is their whole web services thing. Oh, okay. And so you can buy space to host your website mm-hmm. or so and it's very inexpensive. It's like the most inexpensive hosting you can have. So, um, but you know, there's always going to be a, in America, at least in our foreseeable future, there's going to be some capitalistic, uh, ways that people are going to try to monetize VR, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I still feel like there is, uh, I, th- I still feel like th- what we'll get as humanity will be greater than how people will try to monetize it. I hope so. I mean, I, on the negative side, I'm curious what your thoughts are on like this reality. You know, you've, do you find it? mostly pleasant or is there an escapism element that's appealing to you about it um i just i think it's just about again i I keep for me it's about going back to what it is i can't experience that would be cool Mm -hmm. or it's about giving some somebody else an experience yeah and then if you really want to get deeper into it then it's about well are there experiences that i could give someone that will help them yeah. And so when it comes to trying to give someone or personalize an entertainment form such that you're using their psychology to make an experience better. Yeah. There's a whole lot of other stuff that that technology would open up for mental health and for mindfulness and for a whole lot of other things that I think humanity will benefit from. Yeah, that's what I was going to kind of touch on because I think with kids already addicted to like um tech addiction is a big thing where you know it like results in loss of life sometimes people just sitting there until they their biological functions cease to operate and wow it like it's almost wow. like you know like imagine that just sitting in a chair and like you don't eat enough or hydrate yourself well enough and then you just expire have you um read infinite jest Mm-mm. so there's like that's kind of a part of making a film so beautiful and so enrapturing that like people wouldn't get up out of their chairs <laughs> and they would and i think what you were talking about of like for you it's the story and it's it's helpful it's all positive but it's also has the makings to a certain degree of like a super villain in a movie because they're like i'm trying to help people like this is good <laughs> but then given to the wrong hands people go i don't want to go back to normal life this is too amazing for me it's yeah. like a drug it starts to become this thing and like i can't live without it yeah I, yeah i don't know how to answer that i feel like <laughs> i don't want to talk you out of your life's work no no just... <laughs> no I, <laughs> I feel like that you know, 
the goal is to try to for me to give someone a different experience like i've said but like also what we experience here yeah is great Mm -hmm. and so i think uh, going back to the second or third thing i think it'll help people become more mindful such that they can live better lives in the real world so for instance if someone is afraid has some phobia uh, part of the research that's going on in the VR community is trying to figure out how to get someone out of their fear. Mm-hmm. And so to use VR to have them go into that environment and and experience it over and over again such that it doesn't have the same sort of uh, fear attached to yeah. it. Yeah. So that's just one small example. But yeah, it'd be, it'd be nice to figure out ways to help people want to appreciate the way that they are in real life and also to discover things about how they interpret real life that may be causing them harm or pain. Yeah. I, I mean, these sort of fears seem the, the equivalent of like when people went, you know, a human body on a moving train, that <laughs> might not be safe. They maybe thought that about movies, you know, like, oh, if people, you can't put a camera on the front of a train, people be throwing up all over the theater. And now we do, we have so many looks and glimpses into other realities other experiences through film that like we're used to it and and people don't leave a theater for the most part feeling like distraught and and ideally you're it seems like that's what you want your thing to be where like people go into it they get a little dose of something that's uplifting or helpful or and they just take it off and go back and enjoy their life hopefully even more yeah i think we go on to your point i think we got to be careful about this stuff and the technology particularly when you start adding artificial intelligence and stuff like that yeah and, um, you know, it's the reason I joined uh, an IEEE committee, actually, on, on the um, on, it's a well-being committee, AI and well-being, mm-hmm. to try to figure out what are the safeguards that we need to put into the technology to, to prevent it to, from being used in a bad way that hurts people's well-being. So, ah. so I, agree that, I agree that there's something that should be done. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what those things are going to be yet. Mm-hmm. Um, we're working in the committee to try to define some of that. But the goal for me is to teach people how to live better in real life because this is what we got and it's the best uh, It's the best of what we have. And so to be here and to be mindful, I think so many people spend most of their lives fearful of things or not living up to their full potential or not getting over some past hurt. You know, there's a lot of things that hold people back Mm -hmm. that they're unaware of. And I think if we can create or use technology to discover some of those things that we can eventually help people live better, better lives. That's beautiful. Well, I want to hear, I want to, if you don't mind, we'll take a little break and refill our beers. And I want to hear a little bit more about where that sentiment comes from and where you think the future of it, how realistic it is, things like that. Sure. Well, come back next week for part two, or if you've saved up for a while and you're just binging these, then you can just, uh, I guess, I don't know how it works, touch the icon or press next or something. Who knows? And and listen to part two with Arvel, who, um, after we were done, I don't know if this is too revealing, but I found it very endearing. He was like, whew, that's, I can see where that would be a little much for an introvert. I was like, Oh, what do you mean? And he was like, Oh, I, you know, I decided a while ago to kind of put myself out there. So this, this was, you know, not the easiest thing for me, which I was blown away by because he was so natural and so easy to chat with. And just, um, I really liked his style and you forget that sometimes, like, especially when you're just interacting with someone for the first time, you don't know who they've been their whole life. So I don't know what that means, but if you're 
you know, a little bit um, frustrated by some of the limitations that maybe you're putting on yourself, just take a page out of Arvell's book and, and put yourself out there. I, I would never have known if he if he didn't tell me that, um, you know, like most introverts, it's it's a, it can be difficult sometimes to do these kind of things. I think that's why I like podcasting off in the recesses. It fits my nature a little bit more. Yeah, check out part two next week. We we get real into like VR and existence and the whole nature of all of it. And really interesting, I think, to talk with someone who's on the, the ground floor of that and sort of one of the architects of the next frontier. Thanks again for supporting the show. Thanks. There are a bunch of new ratings now. I really appreciate that. Uh, I don't know why, but I, I think it helps the show and it gives it a little bit more um, exposure. And so that if you've never helped the show or contributed in any way, that's one little step you can do, click on a star and rating it on iTunes. It does help with the algorithms and the searches and all that sort of thing. So if you like this show, thanks for telling a friend. Um, and you can tell me if there are things you don't like about it. You can email pings at the space cave. If you have suggestions on beer or music or guests or whatever else, feel free to. You can check out related posts and things at thespacecave.com. Twitter is space underscore cave. You can follow Dan at Dan from Orange on Twitter. He's always there to interact and say hello. He's a nice fellow. So maybe you send him a little note and say, hey, man, thanks for editing those shows together all the time. Couldn't do it without him. Couldn't do it without your support. So thank you. And let's get out of here. This is a song I felt it's been getting played a decent amount on the radio. So maybe this is one that's too exposed. But I like there's something I like about the sound. And initially, I thought maybe the title seemed a little cheesy, but then talking about this concept of a first-person narrative, using your emotions to sort of guide you through an altered reality, maybe virtual reality, um, this seemed oddly apropos. I don't know if it is or not. I hope you, hope you like it. I think it's a pretty song. Here is um, Motion Sickness from Phoebe Bridgers. Thanks for stopping by the Space Cave.